Welcome to the Patmos Podcast. I'm Cooper Wagner, and I'm often joined by my partner, Cole Jones. Here at Patmos, we're on a mission to be the healthiest investment firm in the world. Part of how we plan on getting there is by learning from men and women who have gone before us in life and business. So I hope you enjoy these conversations, and thanks for listening in. If you find them helpful, we would love to hear from you. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, or just shoot us an email, which can be found on our website at patmoscp.com. All right, well, today we are here with Britt Harris, who has graciously spent more time than we deserve with him. Britt? No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Britt was the president and CEO of Utimco. I should say is the president and CEO of Utimco. It's a $67 billion endowment for the University of Texas and Texas A&M. Britt joined Utimco in 2017 as its chief investment officer after spending 10 years as the CIO of the teacher Retirement System of Texas. Prior to that, he held executive roles at Bridgewater Associates and the Verizon Investment Management Corporation. Over the course of his 43-year career, Harris has led seven investment companies and has been named one of the top 25 investors by Institutional Investor. Did you know that? How do we get on that? <laughs> <laughs> you start a lot long, way back. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to get on this list you know, in a couple of years. But, uh, and it was a very different time then frankly it was a lot easier yeah. than it is now well um again thank you for for spending time with us we we always love to start out and just hearing you know we gave you an intro but um if you could give us a little bit more of the background of Britt harris and how you ended up in those roles and ultimately to here today and then we'll jump into some of the other questions yeah so as you said i've i've, I've led seven different investment organizations i'm the only person that has led an investment company in the top five for corporate, public, endowments, and hedge funds. So I've been around, and, I'm, and I've been an advisor to the New York Fed and the Dallas Fed for years, and I've been on President's Working Council. And I only set this up because you're asking me how I got here. Right. And when I was younger, I didn't even think about these things, and if I had thought about them, there would have been no, no route from here, you know, from here to there. So do you guys know the story of Joseph in the Bible? We do. So my story is like Joseph in the Bible. The, you know, at 17, he was spoiled and arrogant and had some talent. He was not in the right spot. He had no experience. Um, His character was low. And yet we know that 13 years later, he's going to be the second most important person in Egypt. And so had that occurred, I think this is how things occur in all of our lives, you know, God knows where we're going. We have no earthly idea. And things that happen along the way, in retrospect, not always, but a lot of the time, I say, oh, that makes sense now. So Joseph needed to have his character refined. He needed to change his location, and he needed to get the experience to do the job that was going to come up later on, which not only saved a lot of people from famine, but if you think about it really further, it saved the line of Christ, which could have been stamped out by that famine. Mm. So the first thing that happened to Joseph, you know, the story is he went into the pit. I mean, this guy with the multicolored coat and the entitlement, his brothers hate him because he's lazy and he's also, uh, his father's treating him as special. They, you know, they want, they try to, they want to kill him. That's, that's about as bad as your relationship with your brothers can get, I think. <laughs> the, uh, so they throw him in the pit and um, then they eventually decide not to kill him because when is the only good only when is being sold into slavery the good option? It's when you, otherwise you're going to be killed. 
So he comes out of that pit, and his, I guarantee you his entitlement, his arrogance, you know, his lack of humility, uh, you know, had eroded substantially. And then when he gets into gets on to slavery, instead of getting killed, you find out he's that the slave traders are going to Egypt. Yeah. And only because we know the end of the story do we know like he's got to be in Egypt, you know, in order to, to fulfill what God has planned for him. And so God gets him to Egypt and he's working for a guy named Potiphar. And so now his character is being refined. He's not he's close to the right location, not exactly, but he's really close. But he has no experience. <clears throat> And we don't really know what, what Joseph's gifts are at this point. We know he can interpret dreams, but how often does that, you know, need it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's going to be, in a minute, it's going to be very important, but we don't hear anything about else about the dreams for a while. But all of a sudden, the scripture says that um, the Lord was with him and that he prospered Potiphar. Beca- Potiphar was prospered because of Joseph. Mm-hmm. So here's you know, a godly man who's been who's now a slave inside a secular situation, uh, but he is about to, you know, and he's a worker in the general population, but his gifts are so great that he, he it becomes pretty quickly, it becomes obvious that this is the best one out there. Mm-hmm. And, and Potiphar says, you know, you just run it all. Now, if, stop there for a second. It's like, oh, but he didn't, you know, I have to be like everybody else. You know, in order to be successful. Well, apparently not Joseph. The thing that made him, you know, what you need to be is different from everybody else if you want to be successful. Everybody else is average. The, so he gets, starts to get the experience, and he does well, and then he's doing, now he's back to the top of the, at least in his world of being a slave, you know, he's back to the top. I imagine his accommodations are much better, and now at least in that world he's doing well, but it says that he was very handsome, is read, go back and read like he was handsome of form or something like that, like all Christian men, <laughs> the except for three of us, the <laughs> the and uh, because of that he was attractive to other women. Uh, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. He does the right thing, um, and yet when when a Potiphar comes home, you know the wife who has gotten his cloak, you know says your servant tried to rape me. And there's, I don't know what Potiphar was thinking, but it's very likely he was thinking, I know this guy and I know you, and your story is probably not completely accurate. Because if it was, if he thought it was completely accurate, what would have happened? Uh, he probably would have killed Joseph. Yeah, not probably. I was off with his head. Yeah. You know, but he can't, but his wife has made this very public, so he's got to do something. So instead of killing him, he sends him to a new prison. Do you know where that new prison was? I don't. Not in Egypt. It was definitely in Egypt. It was, it was on the very campus of Pharaoh. So he moved 90% of the way there, you know, to Potiphar. And now through this terrible circumstance, he's put him like Pharaoh's right upstairs or right across, you know. And, and so now he's exactly in location. And again, uh, he, he does the same thing. And and the jailer says, you know, he that uh, you're, you know, you take over everything. So again, this is a godly man with godly practices in an un, ungodly situation. But the ways he, what he's practicing and the way he's going about things, is just so much better and so much so differentiated from everybody else that both of them, 
say, you know, you take over. And that's what people do. Like if you're really good at your job, they want you to take over. Right. Uh, whether you're green, blue, black, or yellow, or whether you're Christian or non-Christian, and they just want great people to take over. And so he's showing that he has special gifts in this area, and he's bringing them completely into the world, even though he could have said, God is not with me. How could he be? You know, I'm, I'm a slave for Pete's sake. Yeah. Or he could have said, I know I could re- help these people with all this, but why would I? You know, they're not godly. But he, he just continues. All he does, guys, and this is super important, I think, he just continues to worship God regardless of what everybody else does. Mm-hmm. And he, every day he gets up and he brings all of his gifts to whoever you know is, his, is in his path. And he just does that over and over for 13 years. Mm-hmm. And then one day somebody comes to him and says, uh, hey, I have a dream. And I mean, it's a cake maker. I have a dream. And another guy says, well, I do too. And so for the first time since we heard this when he was very young, all of a sudden, now he's probably 30, uh, all of a sudden he says, oh, let me, you know, tell me what the dream is. And the first guy tells him his dream and the interpretation is, hey, you're going to go back. You're going to be fully restored to Pharaoh. So the other guy's kind of, Tim, what about me? Tell me I'm uh, not, so, not so good. He was going to be killed in three days. Mm. And so three days later, the, this one guy was killed and the cake maker goes back to his full position with Pharaoh. A little sentence in there, not to miss, is that before the cake maker goes back, Joseph, who's been there for 13 years, kind of pulls him aside and says, you know, when you go, don't forget about me. You know, please tell Pharaoh that I'm here. So he goes back and, of course, he immediately tells Pharaoh and everything is restored. Is that the way the story went? No. No, the guy forgot about it completely. (laughs) Either because he forgot or it was expedient not to remember. So two more years go by. And then all of a sudden, Pharaoh has a dream. And it's really important, I think, to sort of walk through this with clear-eyed that he has this dream, which apparently happens periodically, and he has the best the world can offer. Stanford, Yale, New Haven, you know, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, whatever the best is in the, the, the world has to offer, those are his advisors. And apparently they've been pretty successful. You know, they, they're still there. You know, they, these were good advisors. And yet he turns to them and all of them say, we don't, we don't know. And that's, of course, when the cake maker oh, I know somebody who can interpret dreams. And so immediately Pharaoh says, go get him. Now I want us to put ourselves in, in Paul's situation, not Paul, Joseph's situation. He does not know that today is the day. You know, after 13 years, right. he has no idea what's about to happen. But in the next, let's say, two hours, his whole world's going to be changed. Mm. And so I don't know who went down there, but I envision it soldiers, you know, going to get and they burst into the prison and kind of, who is, uh, who's Joseph? Mm-hmm. Soldiers, and 99% of them are going, no, not me. <laughs> it's not me, you know, and they say, oh, it's that guy over there, and they jerk him out of there and um, tell him he's going to go to, to uh, Pharaoh. But what's his condition? 
I mean, he was a prisoner. He's not, probably not, not very good. Yeah, he's filthy. Yeah. You know, his clothes are terrible. He's not wearing an Armani suit, you know, <laughs> like ready to go. He's, you know, he probably doesn't even have shoes. And he's, you know, just hasn't shaved in front. And so they said, you cannot go, you know, up to Pharaoh, you know, looking this way. Mm-hmm. Which is why we wear suits, even Christians. Like, we can't go to Pharaoh looking, you know, like we just came off the beach. Right. The, but it's just a uniform. The, and so they clean him up, and again, I don't know how long this is, but it, it couldn't have been that long, because first of all, remember, Pharaoh's right, waiting for him, and I guess they're just continuing to conduct business, and so pretty short order, he goes from being a slave with feeling like, you know, I had hope, but it's not, I don't have much anymore, to 60 minutes or 120 minutes later, being walked into Pharaoh's um, you know, throne room. Everybody you can imagine that's in there, it's kind of, there he is. All the eyes turned to him. Whatever Pharaoh was doing, probably said, all right, let's just stop that for a second. <laughs> you know, this uh, dream, this guy who can interpret dreams has just come in. And so he walks in again as the only godly man in the whole room. I don't know how many people were in there, but I, I, I would imagine, you know, there were, you know, 10, 20, 30 people in there, maybe more. And there's just, and they've called for the Christian, even though they don't know, or they've called for the, at that point, you know, they've called for God's man. Even, they don't know anything about that. They just know that the cake maker says he can interpret dreams. And, mm-hmm. and so one of the, so Pharaoh says to him, so I've heard you can interpret dreams. And remember, after 13 years and all this pain and suffering, you would think that Joe said, "Yes, I can. Come on, you know this is going to get out free. Get out of jail free. You know, yeah. Just let's get it over with, so I can get out of here." He actually says, "No, I can't," which is a shocker. I'm sure it was a shocker to the cake maker. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. The uh, he says, "No, I can't, but God can, and He will interpret your dream through me." And so Pharaoh gives him the dream. And I kind of get the impression that that Joseph kind of heard the dream and it was pretty easy for him. And he looked over at the wisdom of the world, which is vast, great. You know, it's unbelievable how much wisdom and knowledge there is in the world. But eventually it's, it's capped. Mm-hmm. And now he's heard this dream. It apparently seems easy to him. And I, I, I don't doubt that he kind of looked over at the guys and said, well, you know, now you've heard it again. So, you know, I don't want to say, mm-hmm. and, you know, why don't you guys just go ahead and tell them? Right. But they, they still can't do it. And so he interprets the dream. It's always good to read the Bible, not just kind of, you know, it's like, what would normally happen? Like, is this normal? Yeah. Is what would happen now before you? So now he's interpreted the dream. Everybody in the room is going, wow, this guy is amazing. He just pleased Pharaoh. So what, what is he supposed to do? He's probably supposed to get a promotion and stay around and... yeah. Right, yeah. He's made the sale. What do you do when you make the sale? Give him the documents. <laughs> give him the documents. Sign, Sign give him a pen, yeah. give him a pen. Yes, you do do that, but when you've made the sale, you stop talking. Yeah. Because you're at the top and you're going to, like, the next word you say, you know, is dangerous. And so he's supposed to stop talking and go stand by the wall. And when Pharaoh leaves, he's kind of, I like that guy, you know, let him go. But we have a hint that 
Joseph is loaded up with the gift of administration, the gift of leadership, the gift of organization. And I can just see there him saying, I know I'm supposed to, I know I'm supposed to go stand by the wall. I know I am. Don't say anything, don't say anything, but just say it along and say, Okay, what you need to do is you know you need to build some defenses in the city, you need to set up this particular way of harvesting and, and saving. And he, he just gives them, you know, a strategic plan on the back of a napkin. Just you know, just because he's gifted in that way, he can't help himself. You can't help yourself when you're operating in your mm-hmm. gift. And it's not, and Pharaoh then says, hey, this is the brightest man in the country. I, I get that. It's, he just did something that was amazing for him. But again, these, these trusted advisors, what would normally happen when somebody comes in, interprets one dream, and all of a sudden your boss is saying, this is the wisest, Guy around. Jealousy, frustration. Yeah. What they would normally do is say, uh, Joseph, that was really impressive. You're a very talented young man. Could we borrow Pharaoh just for a second? <laughs> no, no. Pharaoh, could we just talk to you? And they'd say, no, Pharaoh, that was really impressive. But let's just remember, we just met this guy. Maybe a better path would be to make him an analyst. You know, and let, let's watch him for a while. That's what would happen nine times out of ten in the real world. But this is so impressive that even these guys agree. And so let's say it's three hours later. Who knows? What, ha- what is happening now is Pharaoh says, uh, give, him the, give him the robe, give him the ring, give him the power. And from this day forward, other than me, this man's word is law. The only godly person in the whole shooting match, maybe in the whole country. And what are the odds that God's one person is going to come through all the, that competition and end up being in charge? This is not, and if you were sitting there when he was 17, and it's you and your dad sitting around saying, hey, I want you to be really successful. As a matter of fact, you know, you need to be in a better country and and you can't you know let's plot get a plan here to make you the second most important person in Egypt there's no way we would have come with this plan right no way this is exactly the opposite of the plans and so God knew where he needed to go and God was giving him what he needed to have when he got there and so I started at a, at a public utility company mm. I don't think anybody says you know what, if you want to be the leader of seven major funds and all the stuff that we talked about earlier, the first thing you do is you go work at a public utility. But, you know, I needed refining. And, you know, I met some people there that were just super high characters, so I was able to learn from them. And my character improved. And, and uh, you know, I, but then with that, not, with that done, I got a little bit of education, but I wasn't in the right place. So I needed to be in New York. And so, you know, all this offer from New York came, it actually came when I, I told people I was leaving the job at Texas Utilities and I was writing my goodbye note and telling them, like, this is the next guy, John Casey. I had no idea, but I got written back seven times saying, you know, before you go, would you consider something on the investment side up here in New York? And I didn't, I was perfectly happy where I was. Uh, I've never actually ever looked for another job. I just wanted to do the best I could where I was. Um, and so I, I said, I should be polite and respond. This is 1986 or 87. 
I look around. There's no typewriter. <laughs> there's, there's, but there's no pen, but there is some typing paper. So I actually literally wrote my resume out in pencil. Uh, you know, and sent it. You know, I guess that's a differentiating feature. Uh, showed some frugality, I guess, but it's what uh, is what on the resume that mattered, not how fancy it was. Yeah. And you know, I got the offer, and kind of the rest is history. Wow, that is amazing. It's it's always refreshing to hear biblical stories told like you you told it because it is uh, it's easy to read those pages and think. This is what happened. This is the story, right? We know we know the Joseph story. I was a pastor's kid. I've mm-hmm. heard it a thousand times, told it a thousand times. But re rethinking it through just that lens and how would you, like you said, how would you? A lot of people try to plan and be. How can I be the most powerful person? I'm sure a lot of people from their teens are like, I want to be the president of the United States, and uh, they plan, but very rarely do those plans happen. Yeah, but, there's nothing wrong with planning unless two things are going on. Number one is, while you're planning for out there, you know, you're not present right now. Yeah. You know, so the person who's present right now is actually walking forward mm-hmm. while you're looking, you know, five years out, and by the time you take your binoculars down, he or she, are, you know, they're, they're already like a mile ahead of you. Yeah. The, you've got to do a great job every single, every single day. Mm. And the second is, you know, God, God doesn't mind us planning. He wants his participation, but there, aren't there many places in the Bible where like, God laughs at our plans? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always place. for our good. Right. But, you know, so and we're not saying don't plan, but, you know, just be careful that that makes you not present now. Yeah. And, you know, understand that God's going to determine what's going to happen what, regardless of what you may, may want to do. Yeah. So when you were at the your first job at the public utility company, uh, did you have any mentors or, or you know early on in your career? Who were your some of your mentors, and you know how how important were those those people in your life? Yes, I did, and I was very fortunate to have the mentors that I had. And now that I've been teaching for eighteen years, and I've been seeing young people go into different places, I've just realized the impact that your first boss actually has on you. You're like a little duck. Uh-huh. You know, you go out there and you just imprint on what you see because you've never seen anything else. So I have a lot of folks who they've gone out and they've actually had pretty bad bosses. It does not going to last forever, but they get imprinted that bosses are, you know, bosses are bad. <laughs> and they don't get any good examples of how to behave or how to operate, but they don't think, well, it would be the opposite. <laughs> right. But I, I didn't have that experience. I had tremendous examples right off the, off the bat. You know, two of them in particular, one of them was Earl Nye, and Earl Nye was the CEO at the time. And I have a funny story about him because when I, when I interview with the company, you know, you interview with people and you work your way up, and then the last interview is with the most senior person. And so I'm with Earl, and I'm 22, and, you know, and he's across his big desk, and he asked me the question that you always get, like, well, son, you know, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Now, I, what I'm about to say, it sounds very arrogant, but it, what it was really was very naive, mm. because I just blurted out, well, Mr. Nye, in 10 years' time, I think I'd like to have your job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, how silly. The, uh, but to Earl's credit, no, he just kind of tipped his head, head back and, said to me, well, son, you know, 
I hope you get it, and I hope I'm as happy about it as you are. Wow. And so here was a man of, of great integrity, great skill, a great character, you know, worked well with both the financial side, the operating side, and the people side. And then his, his uh, chief of staff was a guy named Gerald Gibbs, and Gerald Gibbs was a retired military colonel. And so, you know, I was the third in line, you know, Earl and Gerald, two amazing men, and then I was the number three, you know, basically carrying their bags. But the other thing is not only to get to see really great examples of professional people, mm-hmm. but I also got to be with the senior people, mm-hmm. which you know, I didn't know at the time. Like, I'm very macro. You know, I'm glad there are people that are very micro because you've got to implement, and that's super important, but that's not my gift. Mm-hmm. And so you know, right in the beginning, God put me, you know, you go into the consolidated accounting department mm-hmm. for a public utility, like, oh, yes, you're going to be. <laughs> uh, but it actually was the best spot because I was close to the senior executives and I was able to observe the whole company, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just a little part of it. So, yeah, I had some tremendous role models. Of course, I had my own dad. You know, you always skip the people that are right, closest right, to you. Right, right. I had my own dad who, who was just a, you know, my dad was just a very successful business person. Uh, but, but his story is, the brief version is, he'd gone to his father, my my grandfather, Daddy Buck, and he'd said, I think I'm being called to go into the ministry. And Daddy Buck, who's a wonderful guy, but also very practical, said, well, I don't see that how that could be right because you're so good at math. Like, why does somebody, why does a preacher need to be good at math? Well, I don't, maybe I can't think of why. So you listen to your dad, and he went to A&M, and he got a degree in petroleum engineering and a degree in, in uh, a business. And of course, in those days, you went into the military f- first. He did that. And um, then he went to mobile oil. And by the time he was 33, he was, the, he was the most successful person at 33 in the history of mobile oil. Wow. And we were living in Connecticut and it was kind of a mansion. And mobile oil used to be in New York. But at 33, he contracted terminal cancer. Course, I'm remembering this to the eyes of a, like a nine year old. All I can really remember is that my mother wasn't there during the day and we were staying with our neighbors. And when she was there, you know, she was, she wasn't like weeping all the time, but it was very, she, very clear to us that she was very sad. It wasn't used, it wasn't a nut, unusual for us not to have dad there because he traveled pretty much all the time. But even though he traveled, I don't think of him ever as, a, as an absentee father. But anyway, he gets this, in his testimony, he gets this, this, he asks the doctor after everybody's gone, like, give me the straight scoop, like, what's going on here? And the doctor said, well, I, I can't really guarantee you that you're going to live another you know, week or two weeks. Wow. And so from his, his, remember, he'd had the calling to become a pastor, and, now, and to the outside world, like, he'd help start churches, he'd brought, help bring missionaries into Turkey, he had a spiritual resume that was very good but he was 10 degrees off. And God will only allow you to be 10 degrees off, you know, for a certain amount of time. And he's kind of like, we're going to fish or cut bait here. And he will do, God will do whatever is required to get you in line. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. And uh, so, so uh, dad makes a phone call to the seminary from his hospital room and said, I'm going to enroll in the seminary in the next semester. Then after that, they took him from, from uh, Bridgeport Hospital in Connecticut to New Haven, you know, the good, big hospital, 
In those days, you didn't send anything. You carried your x-rays with you. And the next thing they know, the doctors are coming in and saying, no, here's the x-rays you bought, brought, see the cancer, and here's the x-rays we just took. Where's the cancer? And so I'm just going to ascribe that to God's miraculous work. Yeah. Now, eventually it did get him 20 years later, but it was after he had a great effect on the ministry. So I've had more than my fair share of really good role models. Yeah. Well, uh, there, we have a bunch of questions that, that um, you said you'd be succinct to, mm-hmm. and I want to get back to those, but what you're doing right now is the gold. And so what you, what we know and how we got connected to you is through some titans who you've invested in. And so in turn from probably having some great mentors, is how has that impacted you to now do what you're doing with with yeah. your work history? And, and can you just talk about the titans for those? Uh, we, I mean, uh, we know about yeah, sure, sure, sure. The so that actually brings up another great mentor, a guy named Bob Buford. Now, Bob, Bu- I never worked for Bob Buford. I really never had much of a conversation with Bob Buford. But Bob Buford and Willow Creek Baptist Church sponsored a thing called the Foundation. And the Foundation was supposedly they would search the world over and they would the U.S. mostly and they would, and say who are the most successful Christians in business under forty. Now, and I got invited, and a bunch of my friends got invited, which means it absolutely wasn't. <laughs> you know, but, you know, we tried to fool ourselves that it was. And, of course, when we got to be 40, it was like, we meant under 45, you know. Yeah. But so Bob Buford's big thing was were two. One of them was a BHAG, like you need to have a big, hairy, awesome goal. And his was 100 times. You know, whatever he did, you know, he wanted to be like the, the really effective servant. Um, but the other one was that there's something beyond success. You know, we're all trying to be really successful. And, you know, if you're doing that properly and it's not, you know, you're not sending in the process or your mind is not being taken in the wrong direction in the process, success is fine. I mean, there are people who are called to the rich world. They're just as poor in spirit as somebody, you know, who's in the poor world. Right. And so... Uh, he, he tutored, you know, a bunch of us th- through this vehicle. And he sat down and he said, look, guys, you should live the first half of your career for success. Meaning, you know, find, find a wonderful spouse, you know, have children, develop a family, start your career, learn, learn a trade, you know, get some influence, get some resources, make some mistakes, and become successful. But then he said, look, he was about in his 60s, he said, but looking back from here, to that point of becoming successful, what I've seen happen over and over again is just people just got went from success to success to success to success to success. And then when, when they stopped working, they die. <laughs> because they they never realize that there's something above success, which is significance. Mm. Like who how many how, what what kind of real impact did you make on people or on the way things work? And so he said, he wrote a book called Halftime. Mm-hmm. And so obviously the analogy is obvious, which is you play a football game or a basketball game or, and you play the first half and you come in at, for halftime to regroup, to refresh, to renew, but also to evaluate, like, how did I play the first half? Mm-hmm. How, did the, how did the other team play? You know, what have I learned? And, 
and you so you assess that and you say I'm going to go when I come out the second for the second half I'm going to have transformed my my goal from success to being significant mm. and so Julie and I thought about in this halftime experience like what can we do and I, th- I assume it must be pretty much the, the same for everybody, but I'm sure there are diff- differences. But it basically is like, where are we already involved? You know, where do we have some, um, you know, some, a, enough of a reputation to sort of get involved there? Like it's, at a school, you don't, don't walk in and say, hey, I'd like to teach right. one of your classes, you know. So I was already on, you know, some committees and things like that. You know, I'm a, I'm a fourth-generation Aggie, and, and so that was one, like, and I love teaching, and I was a pretty experienced teacher even by that, that point in time. And um, my calling is to high-capacity, high-character people. Mm. That's just become more and more obvious as I've gotten older. You know, other people, other, you know, there's a story about Calcutta where um, it's really powerful. And this is a true story. A man gets convicted about holiness. He has a business. And... The only model he's ever really been given about somebody who's really holy is Mother Teresa and what she does in Calcutta. So to his credit, with only that model being out there, you know, he sold his business and he went to Calcutta and started working out there. And I've been in the room with Mother Teresa once. It wasn't just me. It was a pretty big group, but the most intimidating person I've ever been in a room with. You know, I mean, she was clearly perceived herself as like, above everybody, not in a like arrogant way, but like I represent God. So I don't need to thank the you know the mayor and the president and the you know like and what I'm about to speak is ultimate. Uh, she's not your grandmother who's like, that's just fine, honey. You yeah, can, yeah. You know, she's like, you, you know, if you're serving God, you know, serve him. You know, don't give a half effort. You know, don't show up every other day. You know, have the confidence that God comes from serving God. And so she goes over to this this guy after a while, and she taps him on the shoulder, and she, you know, and, and uh, the guy looks at her, and she says something like, uh, "What are you doing?" And he gives the perfect Christian response. I mean, absolutely perfect. Like this was getting being chairman of the deacons for sure. You know, he said, "I've I've I've given up everything, Mother Teresa, and I've come here to serve the poorest of the poor with you." What a wonderful answer. Not to Mother Teresa, apparently. She said, well, can I, can I give you my observations? Of course. I would love to hear your observations, Mother Teresa. So here's my observation, sir. You're terrible at this. Go and find your own Calcutta. And one of the reasons we miss our Calcutta is we're always thinking it's someplace else. If God has not said to you, your Calcutta is over there, or over there, or at this time, then we should assume our Calcutta is where we are right now. Mm. And when you know, when we walk into the office, we walk into the school, we walk into the grocery store, we walk onto the ball field, everywhere we go, like, this is my Calcutta. Mm-hmm. And that mindset sh- that shift will turn you into somebody who's fully present. Means you're right here, right now. Mm-hmm. You're not thinking about what happened in the past. You're not thinking about what's going to happen in the future. You're actually right here, right now, thinking, this is my assignment. 
that person is my assignment. You know, I'm grateful to God to have this assignment. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, not everybody in the world is wired up to be great at serving the poorest of the poor. You know, but they're great at serving another, you know, segment of the world. And God, God's equally interested in all the segments. You know, not just the poorest of the poor, of which He is particularly concerned. But, but we just kind of forget that people are in boardrooms and and uh, you know, courtrooms and hospital rooms. They're just as spiritually poor in spirit as anybody. So God called some people there. Maybe I don't know what that guy's real Calcutta was, but it, Mother Teresa told it wasn't there. <laughs> That's all I mean. A helpful story. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so your calling is to the you said it high high capacity high character individuals. Is that how you, is yeah. that how you phrase it? And That's yeah yeah and and to, to operate you know in this kind of executive world. Yeah. Now yeah. God could change it tomorrow, but <laughs> so far that's where. I'm that's awesome. So, um, so you have how, how many Titans, which is where you're spending a lot yeah. of the time, how many have gone through that program? Over 800. And that's in how many years? In 18 years. 18 so years. I started at A&M, and then I did, and I've done it at A&M for 18 years. They're on their 51st, 51st, 52nd class. Okay. When Where my children go, I go. So when my daughter went to Baylor, I taught there for the time that she was there. And then when I came here, you know, since I'm older and, and have a little bit more leverage, you know, I, I said, you know, you guys maybe should do this or that, wouldn't you like? And they agreed to it very nicely. <laughs> but then they said, we have, a, we have a request from you, and that is that we want you to teach Titans at UT. Hmm. So I've been teaching Titans at UT now for five years, and I take 20 to 24 students. They go through a highly uh, rigorous selection process where I have four views on every single one of them and um, and we you know they get in we take them through one hour one uh, semester of training and they know that this is trained to get into the Titan network yeah because the purpose of this is to train you in a different way of leadership different style of leadership to train you to know yourself better to put you together so that you know two are more powerful than one and and then put you out into the Titan network, and so and so we know where every Titan is. We know when when they have a child. We know when they get married. We know when they go on a mission trip. We know when they get sick. We know when they get promoted. So right now, Titans are in 23 states. We're in seven different countries. Titans have started 38 companies. Wow. The minimum value of those 38 companies is over five billion. Minimum value. The We've also had 34 Titans marry another Titan. There you go. So 68, you know, marriages out of 800. And it's not a big surprise. You know, we call right. whole right. world and sort of call people down to, and, and we really emphasize friendship in here. The, and so the two things that Titans does is we emphasize wisdom and we emphasize healthy, positive relationships. Mm. Because I try to think about like, what is, what is not being taught that's really important? Mm. I didn't want to go in there, Julie, and I say, well, we're going to just do the dividend discount model better than the guy you have, which I wouldn't have been able to do it better than the guy they have, and I would have been bored out of my mind because that's really not my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so so uh, wisdom is greater than technical competence, and it's not taught. And then the weird thing, we talked about this at lunch, 
the ability of people to have meaningful, close relationships has fallen, Mm -hmm. has fallen significantly. And so I had these two interns, and I asked them about their college experience, and they're both Southerners, and they're both great guys. They both have $300 million businesses today. And they told me about, they said, well, I I passed out this number of hours. You know, I made A's. I got into the honors program. I did the, uh, you know, the, the investment club. And I said, oh, my gosh, their, their college experience is their resume, mm. which as a professor, quote, unquote, I realized it's so much more competitive that at that point in time, you know, that's very important. Not in the long run, but on the day after graduation, you know, it's very important. Right. But the other one was, and I said, well, did you have any close friends? Like any, did you do any stupid, silly things that were legal and moral, but, and they're funny, but, you know, and they said, you know, actually that's what we regret because to make that 3.8 or whatever, it's actually hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we want right. to sell everybody, it's easy. It's yeah. actually hard. And it took up all of our time. So they don't have, and this is just this group, it's all the groups. And so the second thing is, you know, to become lifelong friends. Mm. And we know at least 68 of them have become even more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you, one more question on that. When you say, you know, obviously that, that 3.8 is hard. So is that, is there a GPA requirement to be in Titans? Or is it no, really no, one no. of those four, you have to hit the four things you look at? Yeah, I don't even look at their GPA. I, That's awesome. Until after. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can maybe get in. <laughs> until after, until afterwards. And then it turns out that the GPA is average like 3.8 because that people know it's an elite course, they know it's very competitive. Um, but I've taken several people who are below 3.0, and, you know, one of them is an Olympic gold medalist. You know, the other is somebody who has the best track record in investing that I'm aware of. But with this guy, his name is Travis Koch. If you can ever get into the, the Voss fund that he runs, it's, it's, it's a, I'd say it's a pretty great thing. <laughs> the, uh, but... But I looked at Travis's, you know, resume, and and I did look at his, his GPA there, and it was like 2.8. And I was kind of like, what? Because I'm talking to him. And uh, so I called him in and said, Travis, what is the deal here? Because I looked at his transcript and said, every course that is super difficult, you know, you are making 99 and just blowing everybody out of the water. But you can't pass ping pong, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and Travis was well, that's not interested in ping pong. Said, you got to be in anything you're doing, you got to stay interested in. And uh, so he's become just a tremendous. So there are definitely exceptions. And there's really no correlation between who's going to be the most successful and what your GPA is. Mm. The correlation with high GPA is you're probably not going to be in poverty. Mm. Same thing with Harvard. You're probably not going to be in poverty if you go to Harvard. Doesn't mean, you know, you're going to be the leader of anything. Right. So something you mentioned that you teach to your students is wisdom is greater than technical competence. And probably another way to say it is wisdom is better than knowledge or knowing a lot of things. Um, How do you teach wisdom or how would you, you know, whenever the Titans walk out the door, you know, how do you say this is how you get wisdom? Okay. Good question. The, first of all, there are four levels of knowledge. You know, when they're in college, you know, they're, they're just doing great, and so they're in arrogance, you know, and then they go to their first job, in particular, let's say it's a trading job, and then they go to despair, <laughs> you know, immediately to despair, 
you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't know anything. And people are telling me I don't know anything. <laughs> and I guess I don't know anything. And so you go to arrogance to despair. And then you, people climb out of despair to complexity. And complexity is defined as they know a lot of things about a lot of things. And that's where the vast majority of people stop. Mm-hmm. They can win Jeopardy. The, but winning Jeopardy is not actually a super valuable skill in general society. And a few go on to simplicity. You know, they know the thousand things you need to know, but they know the, the uh, 200, you know, the 20% is the normal number. That's actually really important. And so therefore, when they, let's say you have a project for the 100 things to do, if you don't know that, you do everything 1%. And so therefore, you end up spending 80% of your time on stuff that doesn't matter because you don't know what does matter. But if you, if you know what matters, you'd, you'd start with the 20% and you spend, make sure you spend 80% of your time on that. And people a lot, often say, well, I don't know exactly what it is. Of course, you don't know exactly what it is. It's better to take a guess at what it is and then hold yourself accountable for what it was, is, you know, what, whether it was or wasn't. So the first thing, is, you know, wisdom is simplicity. So, but you have to go through complexity. So it did, and I'll ask you guys this question before I answer it, like make a statement, first of all, that we decide that we want to be more technically competent a year from now. And we're going to pledge to each other that that's going to happen, and we're going to meet back here in one year's time. How difficult would it be to go out there and, do something that would certify or show that we're more technically competent. Not, not, very not very difficult at all. Just find some test to take, some, you know, and it would be very simple. And when you know what to do, the, what if we said instead, no, a year from today, we're going to come back here and show that we're meaningful, more wise than we are today. And we know that wisdom is greater than technical competence or knowledge. It is the ultimate you know, it is the ultimate, it's the ideal mental framework. So then the question is, so I give you that question now, and you answered the technical question very easily. Like, what would you do? What would be on your list to say, here's some things you can do that will allow you to show, that will allow you to become more wise, and it will be obvious that, that that has occurred. I could think of three things. You guys see if you can think of some things. Um. I think it, uh, the first thing that came to mind is like walking through some sort of personal conflict. That is number one, suffering. Yeah. Suffering is number one. You learn the most through suffering. Mm-hmm. So I went to the school and I said, I'm going to try to increase the wisdom here. And the best way is through suffering. So I'm going to make everybody in this class suffer as much <laughs> as possible. You know, and they said, well, that's not really legal. So, <laughs> so that, that really good route was kind of cut off yeah. for me. But just as an investor, you know, until you've lost, you know, 30, 40, 50% of your portfolio because you're in a down market, you made a mistake, you know, you assume you know everything. Mm-hmm. And then you figure out you don't. And in fact, you can't control everything. And you become more wise. So that's one. Cole? Maybe like... What are you, like walking with people? Like, what are you? Who are you walking with? And you know, what does it look like to mm-hmm. not isolate yourself? Well, yes. So, 
so uh, what you're saying is 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 in this in the area because the second one is have a great mentor. And um, but I'm going to talk about your statement because it's super important. The so but the problem is when people say that it's kind of like everybody's a great mentor. Like everybody's great at accounting. You know, everybody's great at engineering. You know, everybody's great at shooting free throws. You know, not mentoring is a is a special gift. Mm-hmm. And some people have it and most people don't have it. It doesn't mean that those who don't have it can't help people. Right. But if you're talking about the kind of mentoring you're talking about, you're talking about getting yourself with a real, get really gifted mentor. And the likelihood of that occurring is very small. The so you can't put all your chips on that, but if you have one, then you know you should, you know, bless them every single day. And so, I, when I'm in my late twenties, I'm at Waldorf Astoria for a conference, and the keynote speaker at this conference was um, um, was Peter Drucker. You know, Peter Drucker, for you young guys, just makes you know the greatest consultant you know ever lived. Like this is the icon consultant. And I'm thinking when I'm out there, man, I'd love to talk to him. See, you know, I could, I bet I could learn a lot from him. Well, would you, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it, but all of a sudden, later on, I'm in the elevator going up by myself. The elevator door opens. It's Peter Trucker <laughs> by himself. And he comes and he, I'm, and he stands right beside me. It's just the two of us. And I'm literally thinking, this is divine. And now I just have to have the faith, you know, to act on what God has provided. So I gear up, you know, a little bit of courage and I, I turn and say, Mr. Drucker, I'm Britt Harris and I've read all of your books. I really admire you. You know, I'd love to spend 15 minutes with you at any time of your convenience, something like that. He doesn't respond in any way. No response. Doesn't look at me, nothing. The, uh, now he's in his 80s and I'm thinking, maybe he didn't hear me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to get another one in and, but the door opens and he steps off. He looks at me and says, no, thank you. And he gets off. And when I tell that story, but, oh, that Peter Drucker is just a terrible guy. Peter Drucker cannot mentor every Tom, Dick, Harry, and Mary that he meets on an elevator. Yeah. So, so uh, mentoring is the second one. And the third one is read the classics. Hmm. So, the, so uh, Charlie Munger says... He has never known a successful person, never not one, who is not a prolific reader. He says, I've never known a successful person, never not one, who is not a prolific reader. And I, have, I get to engage with a lot of people that by the world standards are super successful. And I've only found one out of all of them that wasn't a prolific reader. And I mentioned to this, this very successful person, I, I'm surprised. You know, most people have, you know, lots of books in their office, and I only see three here. And he said, well, did you know I'm, I'm uh, dyslexic? I said, no, I didn't. He said, well, you ask me any question, uh, like you say, tell me page 72, paragraph 3, sentence 2, and I will tell you, you know, exactly what it is. So the third is to expose yourself to the classics. Now, I forgot something that you said, which is really important. The mentor, you are... You know, the statement is, you are the summation of your seven closest friends, mm-hmm. is totally accurate. You say, well, Johnny, you know, he's just really funny. He's, you know, he's not that moral, you know, but I've known him forever. And, 
know, it's, he's fun to be around. Well, okay, but he's immoral. The, then you're, you can count on it that you're more immoral than you think. The, that group of seven, first of all, you got to have, you know, I don't know that everybody has to have seven, but you got to have four to seven. In this case, we're talking about guys, girls right. the same way in your life that support one another in trying to move in a direction that you want to go. You want to be more holy. You want to be more capable. You want to be more unselfish. You want to be more forgiving. You want to be more talented. You want to be more involved. You want to be more influential. What it, like, you know, so everybody should consider, like, all right, who's my inner circle? And then just write down, like, three main adjectives about each one. And put them all, all together, and that is you. I won't have to. I won't have to interview, talk to you, or anything. And so, that message there is like most people need more friends like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of us, you know, it's like you're letting a snake, you know, stay in your inner circle. Now, they can't be there. So what does that mean? You just kick them out and just ignore them? No, you you know you tell them why why they can't be in the inner circle and that you love them and you want to continue to be a part of their lives, but. You know, as long as they're practicing, we use examples. You know, they're being continually or even remotely immoral. Like, I can't have that associated with my name, or you know what? I'm tempted to be immoral, mm-hmm. and I, I can't have someone in my life who's kind of give me an example of how it's going. So you got to take your your closest friendships really seriously. Mm-hmm. On the topic of being a prolific reader, I think of big piece of that is, is reading history and knowing history. Um, within business and investing specifically, I think it's important to you know know where you've been, to, to know where you're going uh, within the investment mm-hmm. world. Um, you know, how important is that for an investor and anybody in business to, to know where you've been, to know where you're going? Well, first of all, it shows you're not in the arrogant stage. Like, nothing that's happened before me you know, counts. Yeah. You know, the world changes. It gets, you know, it gets more technologically advanced and so on. But whatever technology occurred at the time that it occurred that you're now thinking was, was uh, you know, was a small issue was huge at the time. Mm-hmm. The, uh, and so, you know, in Ecclesiastes, it says there's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. And that's pretty much correct. The, you know, you may have a... a uh, COVID crisis. And he said, oh, you know, we, nope, nobody ever heard of a COVID crisis. That's not like last time, which was, uh, was a uh, uh, subprime mortgage crisis. And that's not the time before, which was a tech and telecom crisis. They're all a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just what, what problem, you know, rolled in there and, you know, fill in the bank on the problem. But it's just problems come up and you can't really anticipate exactly which area it's going to be in, so they're all the same. The And one of the issues with y'all's generation, according to the surveys, is twofold. One is you don't really care about the past. Uh, and number two is you don't take advice from older people. Right? Um, obviously, this is not every single person, but this generation believes the, sor- the best source of truth is their friends. Well... 
unless you have that really solid group of seven friends that we talked about, that's it, there's a it's a loving source. They care about you. It's the least knowledgeable. They have not gotten through life. They have not seen any, much of anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, if you don't know your history, you don't. If you know your history, things make sense. Like, oh, I saw the play you know, up until now, and so now what I'm watching now is, oh, I, I wonder what the, you know, it was a cliffhanger, mm-hmm. you know, when I when I left, and now I'm watching the next scene. Oh, you know, it's the John is the bad guy, and yeah. not Sally. <laughs> um, and so it re- so it repeats itself. The impact of bad things um, is pretty similar, you know, regardless of how technologically advanced you are and things like that. The bad thing causes you market to go down, you know, on average, you know, 36%. If it's if it's a normal, if there's not a bubble associated with it, it actually usually goes down between 20 and 30%. So most bear markets go down about 25 or 26%. Only a couple in the last, you know, 50 years have gone down 35 or 36%, which you think is normal. And then the, if you have a bubble, you know, like the tech and telecom or like the GFC, you know, you go down way, you go down a lot more. So GFC, I mean, bubble for tech and telecom went down 47%. GFC went down 57%. But most go down 25, 26, 27%. There are very few that hit that average. And then, so some have bubbles and some don't have bubbles. Some of those bubbles are productive and some of those bubbles are unproductive, which has a, a you know, an effect on what's going to happen now. So just think about the, te- you lose money in both mm-hmm. uh, because you found out that you over allocated something that now has to be reconciled. So in tech and telecom, we over allocated to this new technology. Mm-hmm. Um, it should have taken hundred dollars in capital, but we put in 300. Mm-hmm. And then some, all of a sudden somebody realized, oh, it's only three, you know, a hundred from zero was great, but we put in 200 extra. So now the market has to rationalize the um, and but we had a productive thing that we purchased modernized tech and telecom system so we could use that as part of the way to help ourselves get back to scratch what was the bubble was was the bubble that we had in the great financial crisis was it productive or unproductive You would be you would be on the other side of the correct answer. I would say it's not productive then. Yeah, so gonna, that's why always wait. Always wait. That's a kind way to say it. Yeah. So remember, the first time around, we were left with new computers and and new infrastructure. This time around, we were just left with this big, massive debt. We just we we had these mortgages that were you know were not going to be paid off, and it was just a big, massive debt. We didn't have anything. We did not have anything productive to use. The so first of all, if you don't have the framework of history, you're not even thinking about this kind of stuff. And if you don't have a framework of history, you don't know that normally the thing that leads us out of recession is residential real estate. So this is the first time ever that we don't have you know the problem was in residential real estate, which was the sector that we used to get out of the recession. So that's not available to us now. So what happened? Somebody had to take the place of residential real estate stimulation because they were the problem. Somebody had to fill in their role. Who did that? 
Exactly. And he was talking about, like, why did the Federal Reserve do what it... You know, if you don't know your history and you don't have a pretty big surface area for understanding how things work, you, don't you miss the fact that they don't have any choice. Like, if we're going to get out of here, um, you know, we have to play the role that presidential real estate plays until animal spirits, you know, come back again. The, they did not expect to have to play that role for a, a whole decade, but there's no way you can know, know that. But it was very, so I made a, I mean, I made so many wrong predictions. Like, you know, the, um, but, you know, I went to our board and said, look, it's a different situation now. Um, we used to go from Austin to New York in a jet plane. We fly 30,000 feet. We get there in three and a half hours. We're not going to be in a jet plane anymore. We're not going to be flying at 30,000 feet. We're going to be in a helicopter, and we're going to be going 10,000 feet and a lot slower, but we're still going to get there. And we're flying at a lower altitude, so any kind of movement up or down is going to feel scarier because if you have a 5,000-foot drop from 30,000 feet, it's kind of, oh, not a problem. If you're at 10,000, you have 5,000-foot drop. It is, a, you know, you get scared. So it allowed you to sit there and say, you know, based on understanding how things worked in the past and the way they're having to work now, and this is an unproductive bubble, that we're going to just have low, slow growth, and we had the, we had the longest expansion we've ever had before, and the, and the weakest. I also went and said, you know, what is the percent change in all of the recoveries and, the, you know, you have the recovery, then you have the expansion. Like, what's the percent change in GDP from, you know, point A to point B for all of them beforehand, all the historical ones beforehand? And I figured out, you know, here's the worst one ever and had a number, like $21 billion or something, would, would be the growth that we'd need to be the worst recovery ever. And so I said, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to assume this is not going to be the worst one ever. And it could have been. And so I'm not going to worry about it until we get to 21 billion. So if you if you don't know anything from the past, you don't even know how to you don't even know how to ask the right questions, and you don't have any framework to say, oh, in the past, you know, this was what was normal, and so therefore I assume it's normal. Now this is what's going to happen, and it's not any different because it's it's uh, Apple phones than it is when it was outhouses. Matter of fact, outhouses were a lot more productive. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so Ray Dalio is uh, someone that you've run with at, yep. at Bridgewater when you were there. Um, he, he wrote a book, I think I saw it over there actually, but Principles for Navigating the Big Debt Crisis just mm -hmm. came out in the, in the last year. And he talks a lot about how there's short-term debt cycles and long-term debt cycles. Um, and short-term happening you know, every five to eight years, long-term debt cycles happening 75 to 100 years. Um, and for those of you, you know, listeners, short-term debt cycles, meaning a recession hits, GDP falls, the Fed steps in, you know, takes interest rates to zero, quantitative easing happens, you know, that happens every five to eight years. But then there's a, every 75 to 100 years, QE happens, but it doesn't really work or doesn't do much. Yeah, I would shorten that time frame to maybe like 50 okay. plus or minus. Okay. The, um, do you, do you um, agree with this kind of um, notion that there are short and long-term debt cycles and 
how do you make decisions, you know, within investment decisions based off of that? Yeah. First of all, I totally agree. The, um, and, you know, and so Ray wrote about this. And remember when Ray's, early on, Ray's said, like, we have to have a beautiful deleveraging. And what did beautiful deleveraging mean? It meant that we have to keep our nominal growth rate above our nominal interest rate so that there's some spread there that we can use part of to pay down the debt. You don't hear, Ray hasn't mentioned beautiful deleveraging for a long time. The, uh, so they're kind of off. You know, we're not having a beautiful deleveraging for the most part. Um, and Ray is um, probably the, the, the most articulate and best thinker overall on the macro subject. But it, could, it just works things through lo- logically, like these are the things that produce that and those are the things that produce this. And, and uh, so it's just, you don't have to figure out some gigantic complex puzzle. It's just kind of like, you know, where are we in all these different feeding mechanisms? And then you have an understanding because you know history that there is a debt cycle because you've looked at history and you've seen it. And you understand that that's the one that everybody thinks about, shorter term one, because that happens a lot. It's the only thing that most people see in their lifetime. Like this is a black swan kind of deal. Like if you never, like I started in 1980. And so I, you know, all I've known for the next, you know, 40 years is falling interest rates and falling inflation and all the ramifications around that while debt ratio was going up. I never really worried about the debt ratio, though. I didn't worry, no, sorry, I didn't worry about the debt because I'm only going to worry about the debt when the servicing of that debt as a percentage of our GDP starts to rise. And in 1980, debt to GDP was 30%, and this particular man I'm thinking of. Today, it's 125, 130%. So, wow, you know, that's way higher. Mm-hmm. The, but the debt service, as a percentage of GDP, is actually lower than it was in 1980. So, as long as that continues to be, be the case, you don't have to worry about the debt. But... You do have to worry about the if the, if it doesn't continue to be, be the case, it's a much bigger worry now than it was 40 years ago because the outstanding balance, you know, is so much larger. Mm-hmm. So people, you know, this is all easy stuff. Like as long as you know your debt's rising, as long as your company is growing, you know, like if you guys, you know, make a hundred thousand dollars a year and you take out a ten thousand dollar mortgage. And then next year you make a million dollars a year and pay a hundred thousand, you know, mortgage. Now, oh my good lord! They just increased their debt by ten times. It doesn't change anything in terms of personal circumstances. Mm. And so, so the economy is growing just enough, and interest rates are coming down. So everything that we finance is at a pretty low rate, and that combination, you know, allowed us to keep our debt service where it is. The, but at the end of the day. Companies and countries and individuals fail. You know, the thing that's on their, you know, their death certificate is bankrupt. You know, it might have been they had a heart attack, you know, uh, but, you know, it's bankrupt. So you win wars by bankrupting the other side. 
so they can't continue to like think about Ukraine right now. They're saying we're out of ammo. The if you know, saying Ronald Reagan, which is kind of let's just keep let's just keep piling it on where they have to. We can outspend them, and so they have to fall off and save themselves, or they'll have to chase us. And they don't have the, we don't have what we have, and so we'll bankrupt them, which is what we did. We did the same thing to Japan, and it's what China's trying to do us to do to us now. So there's a lot of so Ray's pointing out that uh, you know when you get indebted, you, you know you it's 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 not a serious thing as long as those preconditions of the last forty years remain, like continue to have you know reasonable growth. And you can have falling interest rates, but the problem now is that you know, inflation got down to like 50 basis points. And interest rates, long bonds got down to 1% one, one for a while. Mm-hmm. And our Federal Reserve told us that we're not going to negative interest rates. So we hit, we hit the lower bound. And the lower bound was, you know, the dif- difference between what where rates were and where inflation was and the lower bound was always our protection against, uh, you know, unexpected significant deflation. So when you're, I read in here somewhere, you guys are talking about the, you know, when the, when the virus hit, the stock market went down 36% in 23 days. I've never seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. When you, for those of us who are out here, like, we're, we have gauges and we have, you know, like, our gauges are just, you know, just flashing back and forth and, um, <coughs> you know, but, but, uh, you know, you just have to fly fly through it all, and you know. So that's that's. Um, and I guess that's what I'm going to say about that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. powerful. I think and a couple more, and then mm-hmm. we can kind of land the plane here. But I think Ray, you know, is so 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 gifted, and, and as well as you are, and just the hot the the macro level investing. And I think there's a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, with very good trackers that are probably a little bit more micro focused. Um, you know, and just, just saying, hey, just focus on the business. All, all you need to do is just focus on the business at hand. Um, what advice would you have to investors that would say you need to be one or the other? My advice to most people would be forget that notion, period. You don't need to be one or another. You just need to track the market. The So to be to the odds are against you the minute you start tracking you deviate from the market portfolio. So for people who don't understand that, like deviate from the index fund. So for, so for instance, if we're all holding the S&P 500 index fund, you know, we're all up 7.5% in the first quarter. Mm-hmm. But if only you are index fund and we're traders and you like something a lot that I don't like, then only one of us can win. And for that quarter, you may, might be up 8.5%, but for you to be up 8.5%, I have to be up only 6.5% because it has to balance out. And it's not the number of investors. It's the amount of money. It's the amount of money. This has really screwed people up on the election forecasting, by the way. Kind of, most of the money is invested, you know, mm-hmm. as if, you know, this president's going to win. And, but when you go to the voting booth, it's not money. It's like one man, one woman, one vote. Mm-hmm. And they had way more $10 wagers than they had, you know, $10 billion wagers, and they just totally missed it, you know, because of, you know, that, you know, that particular factor. So if you're going to cross the line 
in either direction, you need to number one know that you're getting into you're getting into a loser's game for most people, um, and the and the, the winners are very few. So you know, so I, you know, let's say it was baseball, and I said, um, do you want to be a home run hitter, you know, or somebody who walks all the time? I want to be a home run hitter. The, how many people, you know, is it possible to hit 700 home runs? Yeah. Are there people who have done it? Say, yes, absolutely. And you name them. You know, here's the four that have done it. Oh, what about 600 home runs? Oh, 29 have done it. Out of how many? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the fact that somebody was able to do it does not have anything at all to do with whether you're able to do it. Mm. And one of the things you have to learn, and I learned this was my very first investment before I was an investor, was if you don't do the work, if you don't do the work and you don't do the right work, you do not deserve to make a return. You just don't. You know, where, where is it in the world that you, I go and I do nothing, but I get a premium outcome? Um, it's just not the way the world works. And so... You know, there's a famous original book called The Loser's Game. And, and so the equation for, for stock picking is, you know, the beta, you know, plus or minus the alpha. So the beta is 7.5%. You know, then you had an alpha plus one. I had an alpha minus one in my example, so that comes to zero. Minus the cost. So let's say the costs are 50 basis points or 100 basis points. Right there, the mo- only about 40% of the money you know, can outperform. Now, if you happen to be one of the people that can, and, and that's just like one year. If you're one, you know, so two years, the number gets smaller, and three years it gets smaller, and four years it gets smaller to where you get to the 10-year number, like a, like 700 home runs, like there's only five people, mm-hmm. you know, still standing. And so even in Intelligent Investor, the, right from the beginning, you know, written in the 40s, you know, ben, uh, Benjamin Graham is saying there's a, you know, there's a uh, investor who invests for security, you know, and, and that time stays in high quality stuff. And there's an investor who invests for on a speculative or return basis. And people just need to realize that it's just like, you know, if you said I want to be a doctor. And I'm gonna, go, I'm just gonna go in there and perform brain surgery just because a lot of people have been able to do it doesn't mean that you're going to do it. It's, it's like, you know, because of those fees, you know, it's like Las Vegas. It's not a gambling. It's, I mean, these are real companies with real earnings. It's not gambling. But because the money has to equal out and then there's the fees, you know, it's you're, you're, you're continually playing a game that's, that's 60% against you, 40% for you, mm-hmm. and you don't want to play that game a lot. So just... Put your money in a passive fund, or if where the skill is is I know you guys want to, where you can really differentiate more is you know outside of the public markets. Um, just don't be the don't be the contributor. So imagine I'll say this and we'll move on to the next question. So imagine you have a you're thinking about the intelligent investor and you you decide to draw a matrix. So you know the vertical axis you know says intelligence. 
and the horizontal axis says investor. So you have four quadrants. What Graham really meant by investor wasn't IQ. It was how emotionally stable are you? Mm. How emotionally stable are you? And then effort wasn't just like, no matter, you know, like if you just work really hard, you know, you're going to have an advantage. No, it was like if you work really hard on the things that are beneficial, you know, you're going to have an advantage. But we have a huge problem that people work really hard on things that aren't beneficial, and that's the worst of all worlds. So if you're in that first quadrant, you're emotionally stable, but you're not going to put a lot of effort in, definitely passive. I just don't want to contribute to the, to the kitty. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if, you're, uh, if you're the next one down where you're not going to put a lot of effort into it and you're not very emotionally stable, which is most people in most groups, if you're a recreational investor and likes a kitchen club kind of thing, you know, just like if you went to Las Vegas, I'm gonna, I don't mind spending 100 bucks here, you know, because it's fun. And so they can, can say they contribute 100. And then you have the, the, the bottom right, which is not emotionally stable, but put in a huge amount of work. And that's the one you really feel sorry for because they also contribute. So now you've got a zero, a minus one, and a minus one. And so really all the money typically goes to about one-third of the investors. And individual investors don't have, you know, they don't really have equal opportunity to, if they're, you know. Warren Buffett, thankfully, he makes it possible. You know, what's, what is, what's the cost of one share, though, for Warren? 350000 Yeah. So it's, I don't know if that's really available to everybody. <laughs> it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, just making sure we, we're well past 3 o'clock. Are you st- okay? Okay. All right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> next question we had for you is there's been a, a lot of opinions on what the Fed should do right now with interest rates. Um, and obviously 5% plus seems crazy for Cole and I because we've never seen that. But you've seen a lot of different rates. And um, so what... How, how severe is the Fed speeding up their rates, and, and what, what's your, um, what do you think the impact that's going to have on the economy over the next, yeah. you know, so short I'm time? Just for, so I'm just looking at some of my some information I have here. So let me get to the discount rate. The, well, yeah, here it is. So in 1999, what do you think the discount rate was? Uh, 10. 475. <laughs> you had to go back. It was, it was four, the discount rate was 20 when I first came in. Mm-hmm. So in night, so in in 1999 it was 475. Before last week, what was it? Uh, four Se- 475. <laughs> I'm trying to lead the witness yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. So this is nothing new. The um, and last time we got interest rates up to 475, you know, it broke the system. The, but, and, and so therefore, when it broke the system more than the Fed expected, you know, we had 475 bullets, you know, to fire at this thing to try to stop it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, and we had to fire every single one of those bullets all the way down to 50 basis points to, to, to stop it and turn the thing around. My view is that the Fed wants 500 basis points of cushion. They're not necessarily calibrating only on the condition of the economy. They're saying we need to have, you know, like a hunter, like I need to have 
you know, five bullets, you know, in my pack here if, I, if something terrible happens, and I only have four. You know, so they're going to keep going to, and then they are at five. So it's, I've always been like, they're just going to keep going until they get to at least five, come hell or high water, unless something terrible happens. And, you know, the reason it's even reversed is something terrible happened with the Ukraine situation. But so I didn't have any, I never conceived that there would be a point where they would stop before five. Mm. Just because, again, I knew the history, like it's just very clear in history that they want to be at 500 basis points. Mm. And, you know, and even after the, the uh, you know, before the, the COVID situation, they were trying, you know, they were like 300 or whatever, I forget the exact number, like they were going there, but then something terrible happened and they had to reverse. And so they're back now to the minimum, I think, what they wanted. Now, because they're, now you're in this no man's land where some of the things that they wanted, you know, are starting to happen. Uh, inflation expectations are going down and uh, economic growth is not expected to be strong. I mean, this year's like 1.6 and next year's like 1.7. Two years in a row of real GDP growth under two. That's terrible. But we thought it was worse. You know, six months ago, we thought GDP growth would be, I think, 60 basis points. You know, it's 160 basis points. So why did the market do well? Because it, it had expected us to, the economy to do absolutely terrible. And now it's expecting the economy to do, you know, not what it, not as bad as not what it could do, but cer- certainly way above. Mm-hmm. It's a hundred basis points above what they expected before, and so the market adjusts. Now they're in a situation where, um, you know, it's more gray mm-hmm. because you know it's it's you can sort of see two sides emerging now, and. But still, nothing has broken. Now you see, you see a Silicon Valley bank, and you start to say, "Well, this is the first sign." Because what happens, guys, is that it's like, you know, you throw a nuclear bomb into the ocean, you know, and you off your ship, and you watch it go down, and you can see it, you know, sink and sink until after a while you can't see it. And you just kind of keep looking in that general direction until at some point later on you see this this flash of light, you know, occurring down there. And you know the bomb went off, but you ha- you can't tell who it hit. You know, so then you wait to say, so what dead body, <laughs> you know, sort of comes to the surface. And usually it's going to be, you know, five or ten you know, dead bodies come to the surface. And so in this situation, the first one to come to the surface was, you know, Silicon Valley Bank. And all of a sudden it was, oh, these guys, you know, are managing their balance sheet as if the old structure was going to continue forever. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's, I guarantee you that if they were going to hit a bank, I don't think the Fed would mind that much. But if it was small and not significant, but there's no way they want to hit this particular bank. Mm-hmm because it is really the centerpiece in many ways for our entrepreneurial funding. Mm-hmm. But as soon as it hit that, you know, immediately people went to, oh, where are the other situations like this? So within a week, you know, Credit Suisse is going down and you've got the, and so on. So we're, we're waiting now to see 
you know, if there's anything else that flows to the surface. But mm-hmm. markets do not markets do not change just because of one a one day story. The you know, unless the story is you know, world people run into the World Trade Center, you know, presidents and potentates announce that all work is gonna stop. I mean, markets are kicked. They're not. They don't just fall out of their their current valuation. You know, they are right. shot. And so, when people say, for instance, the market's overvalued, that's not a correct statement. What they're really saying is the market is going to move into another economic regi- regime, where the va- fair value for that economic regime is a lower fair value than it is here. So, if they don't then explain that we're going to go into another economic regime. They just, all they're saying is that, you know, the norm is 15 and we're currently at 19. Well, you know, 18 to 22 is fair value as long as your economic conditions are really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have just enough growth. You have just, you have inflation positive and just under control. And we have sustained that environment pretty much exclusively since 2010 until we had these, some of these breaks lately. So for somebody, if somebody says to you the market's overvalued, you say, "I get it." So, so what, you know, what are the economic conditions going to be soon that will be different than the economic conditions we have now? And that soon part is difficult. You, you know, you can predict what's going to happen over ten years and some of this stuff, but to say it's going to happen tomorrow. What's that thing about Keynes? You know, markets can say solvent. Markets can say liquid longer than you can say solvent. And for markets to correct takes, to, for that moment in time to actually shoot the market, you know, typically takes three or four years. So people who see it first, they're smart money, and they get out. Well, then they're wrong. And the market goes up. This happened in the late 1990s. The market goes up. You know, Greenspan says excessive exuberant. Like, everybody sell. Let's imagine that you're a money manager, you're a CEO, and you go to your clients or to your board and you say, uh, we need to reduce risk. Excessively exuberant. They, well, the next year the stock market went up 20%. So now you're a money manager. Now you're in the third quartile. And you, as the CEO executive, you're in the third quartile in terms of relative performance. But you go the next year and you say, well, it's even worse. And it goes up 20% again. Now you're in the fourth quartile, and you're in the fourth quartile. And your board's losing confidence. Mm-hmm. But they have just enough confidence that, because people will, people will very easily reduce risk. It's really easy to get people to reduce risk because they don't want to be, you said to reduce risk and they said no in the market. So it's really easy to get people to reduce risk. And so you go a third time like baseball. And this time goes up 20% again. This is real world stuff. Now you are like in the top, bottom 2%. You're the absolute worst performer in your sector. And the agency structure can't take it anymore. And so you're fired and you're fired. And, uh, and, and then who takes your place? Where are they going to go to find your replacement? Not shy of. 
No, no. There's a specific person they're going to go to or a specific group of people. You're in the bottom, you're in the top, bottom 1%. So they're going to go to the, the middle guys? They're going to go way up to the top. They're going to go, there's a, who's the best performer? Yeah. Who's the guy who's not reduced risk, who has, you know, you know, put the pedal to the metal, and then he or she is going to come to your fund, and it's kind of like, well, why were you even hired? <laughs> you know, because, you know, you, you're aggressive and you don't, you don't believe all this stuff out over action, and then you turn this conservative fund into an aggressive fund, and in Mr. Market terminology, everybody's now on board, and then you get the correction. So you really have to, when you're managing individuals' money, particularly in a public market, you just you have to take into the psychology. I talked to Jeremy Grantham, who, who uh, you know, was on a U.S. valuation basis, way underweight uh, U.S. equity during the that 96 to 2000 period. I was with him, and uh, he was just getting pummeled. And it's not it's not just the fact that you're underperforming, but every day you're getting redemptions, you know, over and over and over again. And uh, I've done so much for these clients over the years. I have one bad year, two bad years, and there's all jumping ship. The, and he's reading things in the paper about how, you know, he's just not with it anymore, like his time has passed. Warren Buffett was having the same problem um, for, you know, four years in a row. Um, it's hard to stay in the game that long and then the fit, when the market did go down, you know, he shot way up in our structure, overwhelmed any, ever, all the underperformance that, that for people that, and, and sort of went around beating his chest. <laughs> but I, I don't, you know, I don't think Jeremy would mind me saying this, but, uh, and maybe they've changed their mind since that time. But at that time, I asked Jeremy, like, would you ever, would you ever do this again? You know, you were right in the end. And he said, I will never do anything again. It cost me half of my client base and that's not just for GMO mm. but those people that left GMO conservative they I guarantee they went into internet stocks and all that kind of stuff and so they lost you know, in the first half then they switched and they lost big in the second half you just you can't manage individual people that uh, money that way mm-hmm. do it do it yourself for your own money knock yourself out but. yeah um, Cole, any of those last ones that you feel like are pressing that you want to ask? Or? No, I think my, my only last one was just on the kind of market mm-hmm. timing. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about buy low, sell high, and, and then I think there's some wisdom to um, just n- not timing the market and just buying uh, good businesses at great prices. But, um, you know, what is your – we talked a little bit about lunch, how you guys kind of – in 08, GFC went in a little bit, and then you kind of saw what's what, and then it's, you know, let's mm-hmm. let's let's double down here. Um, how do you think about uh, timing with investing? Yeah, so I'm not a trader at all. This fund is not a trading fund. The, you know, we set our long-term strategic plan, and that's our road to Rome, and we just make sure that nothing knocks us off of that road. The with the flexibility of every once in a while, you know, you'll have these major corrections and, you know, something that used to sell for $100, you know, will sell for $50 or credit spreads, only 500 will be 2000 And it's just kind of, all right, 
only assumption I have to, uh, assumption I have to make is that the U.S. United States is not going bankrupt, and that it's going to get it's going to recover within the next three years. That's a, you know that's you can't can't even be certain of that, but the the ability to get confident in that is, you know, history, all of history sort of shows it to be the case. You know when it's not the case, like Japan, you know, when they get knocked off and they, they can't recover. Um, and so, you know, the 5149 type of stuff is just, there's some people that do it really well. I've never really known anybody could do it really well for a long period of time. Um, and normally it's like, I've got my plan, don't, you know, don't panic, don't react, don't get too happy, don't get too sad. You stay emotionally stable until, you know, all of a sudden the rubber band is so far out that you say if it keeps going, you know, then it's the end of the world, at which point Howard Marks tells me if it's the end of the world, nobody, who cares? You know, <laughs> the, yeah. you know it's, and um, you take your big positions then, but as you pointed out, it may look good after the fact, oh, I took this position and it worked out. That doesn't mean it worked out right away. So in the example you're talking about, you know, the great financial crisis, credit spreads for high-yield bonds just went soaring to historically high levels. And, and so when you're talking about, about default rates and recovery rates, it's kind of, oh, my gosh, you know, the, the default rate's got to be three times normal and the recovery rate's got to be half normal you know, for this not to make money. And, uh, and so we started thinking about it. A lot of people did, I'm sure. Um, and we were going to eventually put $4 billion, you know, into this. This is out of a roughly $100 billion fund, let's say. The, and so it, the rubber band got stretched pretty wide. And the discussion we had was, you know, let's put in like a, a, a billion or $2 billion. And after some discussion, we said, no, that's, we don't put our big boats in first. You know, let's test the water here a little bit. So we put in 250 you know, million, which I know sounds like a ton of money for most people, but it's just the same percentage that, you know, that you have of your $100. And we had, and the spreads were really wide. You know, we had great financing, both in terms of rate and term. It was just everything you would want. Well, that boat got blown to smithereens. You know, things can always get worse. The, but the, the real important thing about that is we put ourselves into a, a place where the next decision, if they got worse, the next decision would be based on confidence. Look how smart we were not to put everything out there. And now it's even, you know, now it's even uh, more attractive. And so, you know, we ended up putting money in at different points. And if you were to plot them, you know, none of them were at the exact right time, but I'd say 80% of them were kind of, you know, on towards the top on one side, 80% on the other, and we made a ton of money. But that is not IQ. You know, that is that is total courage or stupidity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the the uh, because people value IQ in this business, and under normal circumstances when the markets are operating normally, like you're fighting out, fighting for five basis points, 10 basis points, and it requires, you know, really great execution, really high IQ. But when you have a correction of 57%, you know, in the GFC, that IQ is not going to help you at all. Matter of fact, it's probably going to hurt you 
because there's you're not more emotionally stable just because you have a high IQ. Uh, you're just like everybody else. So you need both types, you know, in here now. I don't want to stop here without saying something about some of these things over here. That's why. Yeah. Um, so let's can we just keep yeah, going? Yeah, yeah, we'll keep going to it. I, we have a we have a, a bottom section that um, of the questions we wanted to get to. Yeah. So this is these are the most important questions. Yeah, totally agree. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. So, um, and you've talked about it at the beginning. That's why I wanted to to ask some of those about the Titans and and you know, you shared a, a lot of why we're gonna ask this first question. And I think and how you described your career. But um, you've talked to us a lot about, in the, the short time we've had together, um, just living differently than the rest of the world. And so um, how do you think about you know going God's way in business and how it's a competitive advantage? Yep. So first of all, I just have this aversion to thinking that well, the way everybody does something is the right way to go. You know, Because I'm focused on an outperforming not just being like everybody else as a company or as a person. And so I'm, I'm, my mentality is like, if everybody's doing this, then I have to do something different or I won't outperform. And, if the, and it turns out to be the case that, you know, there are basically, you know, two ways to lead. And obviously one of them is going to, one of them is better than the other. And Jesus talks about this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, so here's Jesus' first major dissertation to the world. You know, Christians believe it's sacred. Other people just, you know, like this is one of the top ten sermons or orations ever, you know, since the world began. So either way, it's really important. And, you know, everybody knows about the verse, you know, uh, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated, you know, the golden rule. Well, they get stuck on the golden rule, which is fine, and they don't notice the next verse right after it. When this is Jesus talking, Jesus says, um, Enter by the narrow gate, for broad is the way and wide is the path that leads to destruction, and most take it. When I hear most take it, even without the... <laughs> Okay, like, I don't know if I want to go that way. Mm-hmm. But this, uh, this tells you at least a destruction. And then he says, uh, but narrow is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few find it. So there are two ways to do it. The first way leads to destruction, and the second way leads to life. You know, what the Bible is referring to, the first way is, is the world's way of doing things. And most people are, you know, are operating in that way. But, you know, my source of truth, you know, says if you do that, you're going you're gonna to be led to dis- destruction. And more importantly, you're going to lead your community to destruction. You're going to lead your company to destruction. You're going to lead your country to destruction. I don't want uh, – I'm pretty sure I don't want to do that. The, so what I want to do is I want to be led to life so that I can help lead my community to life so I can lead this company mm-hmm. to life, and maybe even the, the, the nation or the world, depending on you know, what your calling is. So every business person that's a leader should be able to, identif- should be able to, to uh, identify with the state. And like, your job is to lead your company towards life. Mm. And 
And you're going to do that based on, on um, you know, how you think and what your priorities are and how enabled you are by external circumstances. The, so if you were to take this, so it's either destructive or, or um, life. And so if you study philosophy or, and you say like, what is the first question? Now, Isaac Asimov wrote a short story called What's the Last Question? You should get it, written in 1957, it's eight pages, it's awesome. The, uh, but this is like, what's the first question? And the first question is, ends up being, regardless of who really is coming at the, after you do the study, the first question is, does God exist? And, you know, we have people who say no, and we have people who say yes. It's not a decision about, oh, the person said no is bad or stupid or good. And, you know, it has, says nothing about your moral character. It says nothing about your intelligence. It just says you made, you took option, you took door number one or you took door number two. But when you do that, you, you're gonna go down different paths in terms of how you're gonna think about the world, uh, how you're gonna process kind of what's happening. You're gonna think about like what the reasons are for things going wrong you're going to think about what the solutions are to correct those things. You're going to think about who you are in the whole process. You're going to have to decide, like, what is your purpose? And ultimately, you're going to have to decide, like, what, where's this all going? And so by that first choice, you set yourself on a two different, completely different paths. So we're yes men. And so the first thing on, on the path is our friends who would be say no is they would say which God are you talking about and I would say well, I'm talking about the God of Holy Scripture I believe this is a revealed word of a holy God who has sent his own son to sacrifice for his own life for our benefit so that we could be restored to him that's the God I'm talking about and they would say well tell me about him and I would say well I'll just start out with the minimum definition of God, the one who decides. Like, who's the one who decides that something's right or wrong, just or unjust, good or bad? And on the yes side, you know, I've chosen the Bible as my source of truth, which I believe is God's written word, so, I, so God decides, and then I obey. And that's wonderful and terrible, because there's a lot of stuff I want to do that if I'm going to be a person of integrity with what I said I, I'm going to operate, I read God's word and it says, you can't do that. <laughs> so now I have to decide, am I going to violate my source of truth or not? So, so I, I get the answer to, to um, good or bad, fair or unfair, just or unjust, not for myself, but from God's word. And then my friend who's, who's a, uh, doesn't believe in God, you know, I am super curious, really, really curious. Like, you have to make these same hard decisions. You have to make them. So how do you do it? Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not manipulative. It's, it's kind of like, I really want to know because I don't understand. Even, and while they're looking at me saying, that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> and like, I get it, but, it, it, you know, it's what I believe. Right. 
And so what do you think their answers would be? Because they have to make the same decisions. I mean, gut feeling or what hit, or what they've seen other people do. Yeah, could be, yeah. So. Broad, I guess because broad, broad is the path, and so they just they look at what, what their peers do and they, they do that. Yeah, that's definitely one of them. The, could be science. We, I believe in science. I think science is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, science advances one funeral at a time. The, if we would have thought that the science that we knew 100 years ago was definitive, you know, <laughs> we'd still have leeches on us. <laughs> the, uh, so I believe in science. It just advances, you know, slowly and, and productively and so on, but it, take, it makes mistakes. The, it could be some global philosophy. It uh, could be some cult figure. It should be, could be some rep- political party. Normally it is, I just do a lot of work, and I gather a lot of information, mm-hmm. and I decide. And so, saying, oh, that's it. You know, okay, that's interesting, because you you're, you're playing the same role in your life that God is playing in my life. I know you're comfortable with it, but I've been being very nervous. You know, and then they say, well, what is God like? And we say he's all-knowing, he's all-loving, he's all-powerful. And the reaction is, well, how could that be? You know, pain and suffering is happening. And there's bad stuff happening in the world. And it's kind of like, well, did you read the story? <laughs> like, you're blaming this on God when the, the reason this is happening is because we rejected God and decided to do it our way. And as a result of that, you know, sin or all this suffering is a result of our decision. Mm-hmm. And God is the one that actually chased us down, even though we made this bad decision, and in the process of saving us, you know, actually lost his own life, and then was resurrected, which is the which is the nuclear bomb of the faith. Then you say, well, what are the problems in the world? Are there problems? And we say, yes, there are problems. And they say, well, it's a, the energy is a problem, or or uh, poverty is a problem, the or the debt is a problem. And we say, yes, yes, there we totally agree. But the main problem is that we're separated from God, and if we would reconnect with God, those problems wouldn't have existed to begin with, and they would be solved. And so then you get to this, like, how are they going to be solved? And the person whose who's, uh, source of truth is the Bible, which is the most historically accurate document that's mm-hmm. of ancient antiquity that's ever been created, the... Um, the solution is, you know, God himself. You know, God's love is the solution. And so, therefore, we have faith in God and God's love. And because we do, we have this incredible hope for, like, it's all going to be fine. You know, God's going to make it fine in the end, and maybe he'll let us participate, maybe he won't. But it's not reliant on, on us. And that is C.S. Lewis. That is C.S. Lewis. On the other side, it is courage like somebody has to do something about this and this is why there's so, folks on the no side are so admirable because they actually have the courage to go out there and try to tackle these problems rather than faith you know, you know at least historically they, they went out and said we're going to solve this by reason and uh and we're just going to do as much as we can so give me five minutes the the uh and we're going to do as much as we can, and that is Freud. People don't realize that the, these are the two world philosophies, and one of them is, was expressed by C.S. Lewis, 
and one of them was expressed by Sigmund Freud. And Freud has been pretty much, you know, uh, debunked as an effective, you know, person in that area, yet we're still following him. So just to wrap up, so that's all about, about God. Does he exist and what, you know, how is he involved? But then the next three questions are about us. And so, you know, after does God exist and all that, the next important question is like, well, who are you? And those of us on the Christian side have to realize that our answer to that question sounds completely absurd. And what is a Christian's answer to that question? Like, who are you? We are prince. We are princes and sons of God. Yes, we are adopted by the King of Kings, mm. who is God, and because we're adopted, we're actually royalty. You know, walking around the world. I just want you to take off your Christian ears, and you know, and put on you know, just somebody else. They're going, like, ooh, you know, this guy is delusional. <laughs> you know, and certainly that's what Freud said. The, uh, but that is what our source of truth tells us. And so therefore, we again, we have to either conform to our source of truth or decide that we're the source of truth. Mm-hmm. And, and some person of integrity, just, you know, like I can't believe that I'm a, I'm a prince, you know, from the kingdom of heaven walking around in the world, but I am. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, well, what kind of prince are you? You deny it, which is very common. The, um, you say that's just too arrogant. I've got a, I, I'm just a lowly nobody, which is true, but doesn't express who you really are under with God. And then there's the arrogant one, like, of course, who else would they be pick? Mm-hmm. And then there's the grateful one, which is, I can't believe this is happening, mm. and um, I want to serve. The on the other side, if there's no God then more and more people are believing that they're they're just they are an evolved animal. Mm-hmm. I mean pretty much the whole elite organization around the world has concluded that they're just the highest evolved animal. You know, I don't believe we're animals. You know, I believe we're created in the image of God. The and so if you're if you're an evolved animal then you know how are you going to think about things? You know, I, you know my little grandchildren. You know they think they're kitties. You know, well, okay, you're not a kitty. <laughs> the it's cute and all that kind of stuff. But this is a royal view of yourself over mm-hmm. here, and this is not a royal view most of the time. And so when you, so you can see how your mind is forming a different construction of everything around you and you're interpreting everything seeing things differently and interpreting things differently and thinking about the solutions differently and thinking about who are, you are differently and then you get to what's your purpose and our purpose is really clear worship God serve people mm-hmm. like just stick to that worship God serve people. this was Joseph's right and mm-hmm. he worked just worship God and he just served people the the purpose you know if you don't know God 
there's a lot of great purposes, I'm sure, but it's you know it's it's not that clear. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you get to this situation about where's this all going, and you know we believe it's going on into eternity. And on the other side, there's all kinds of beliefs. I can't you know, but usually it's kind of well, this is the end of the line. Mm-hmm. So that simple answer to that first question determines your worldview, and your worldview determines how you process everything and how you think about yourself and what you're here for. And they can't both be best. They can't both be best. And so the Bible says that, you know, God's ways are the most excellent way. Mm-hmm. And I have found that to be true. It's hmm. so good. That is good. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. Um, that's a blessing. I hope people make it this far and if they don't we're going to cut it to to a a shorter that part to a shorter one and post that alone because that's well worth hearing so um again thank you there were so many gold nuggets in there especially at the at the beginning and the end the business stuff is great but the 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 gold is the front and the end so um we got a jet so we don't miss our flight but um brit again thank you so much for for the time you're very welcome i'm very um, honored that you you know, came in and asked these questions. They're very important. I'm glad you're doing this. Yeah. Well, it's fun. So, all right. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that. Um, you know, leave, leave a comment at the bottom. What's most insightful or what impacted you? We'll, we'll, uh, see y'all in the next episode.